how I see manual therapy. Whatever, whatever we do, or anytime, uh, I, I'll make it very simple. Whenever I put my hands on someone, or whenever whatever I say to the patients, I'm using my hands, or what I speak as a modulator to the CNS. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. As I modulate that input into the brain through tactile or however, however, I'm or through movement or fascial work, whatever, I'm trying to modulate input into the brain to reduce the threat. And the output is what I'm looking for to see, you know, the final outcome is, are they, is it easier for them to move? Is the, is the pain reduced or the symptoms reduced? Or I think my whole thing is empower my patient, give them the power that they have, have some control over their pain, how to modulate themselves. Oh, hello. I didn't, didn't see you there. Welcome back to What the Cup of Podcast. It's been a while. We'd love to tell you we were off on some beautiful tropical vacation, relaxing on a beach with a drink. But in fact, we were just getting back to normal clinical craziness at UCSF and Berkeley. However, we're back to bring you some exciting new episodes, starting off with Dr. Claire Frank, the founder of Movement Links, a physical therapist and a fellow of the American Academy of Orthopedic Manual Physical Therapy, who studied under Shirley Sarman and Vladimir Yanda, amongst other greats, and is also an instructor in the DNS Dynamic Neuromuscular Stabilization Series. Along with her, we have Dr. Kathy Huang, who is one of our good friends and colleagues at UCSF, a clinical faculty member who has gone through the Movement Link series, and, you know, in all of her spare time, runs our orthopedic residency program at UCSF. So, sit back and enjoy episode 22 of What the Cup, a podcast. Today's podcast is brought to you by cuptherapy.com. Want to learn science-based application of negative pressure treatments? Want to know more about the in-depth research being done at the University of California, San Francisco? Want to take your clinical skills to the next level? Check out www.cuptherapy.com for more information on the original movement-based, evidence-informed myofascial decompression techniques used by clinics around the world, professional teams, and Olympians. That's www.cuptherapy.com. All right. All right. So here we are. It's episode, I think, 22. We haven't done one in a while, but I have two excellent guests with me, one of them being Claire Frank, which we'll talk all about, and she's going to give us so much insight into the movement science world. But I also have this great special guest, Kathy Huang who is basically a coworker of mine at UCSF and she heads up part of our residency, our orthopedic residency at UCSF. And Kathy, tell us what you're doing there and like how you're surviving all of these things. And so I've been working with Kathy for <laughs> basically the last like what, seven, eight years. And um, we've had a, a large growth and a lot of development and we started an orthopedic residency three years ago. So lots of cool things happening at UCSF and Kathy is now heading part of that as a joint uh, director of it. Hi, yeah, thanks. Um, So I'm Kathy and um, I've done uh, the Kaiser Southern California Residency and the Movement Science Fellowship and um, Manual Fellowship. And that's actually how I know Claire Frank. I've known Claire for, I think, 13 or more years. She is a mentor. She mentored me in the Movement Science Fellowship. Um, I even had the honor of helping TA some of her courses in her Movement Links courses, taking courses um, that she's taught through DNS. So I've known Claire in many different forms, and I'm so glad to actually get to see her, even though it's via Zoom, (laughs) um, because I haven't seen her in so long. Um, But also just to get to talk and get to see how things have evolved since, you know, things have definitely changed in the last 10 years since I've gotten to mentor with you. But also, you know, I think even your practice has evolved and all the new research and like all the fascial stuff that's also been kind Mm -hmm. of introduced and we've been learning about. So 
Um, maybe Claire, if you can just kick it off and just let us know like how it's evolved, like how it all started for you and how you see things are moving in the next few years. Uh, as far as how it's just first started and then now how it's evolved. Yeah, maybe well, just the whole progression of, yeah, your, yeah. Own, your own practice. Yeah, my practice actually started, um, actually when I first started, I was much more into neuro rehab. Hmm. So I was going into the NDT route. route. And so that was my love working with neurological patients. And then I heard Dr. Shirley Simon speak and that kind of changed my entire career. Kind of delved into the muscle imbalances and then very, very fortunately, a few years down the line, uh, um, met Dr. Professor Yanda who took this muscle imbalances stuff to a different level, to, a, to the CNS level, which kind of connected with me almost right away just because of the neural background. So then my journey with, with Professor Yanda and the whole Prague School who has really influenced me since the 1990 when I first met him. So it's been a long journey and I would say a lot of my influence and in looking at the movement system is really much more on a fun from a functional basis uh, because of their, the Prague School's influence on mine on my how I think yeah and it seems like yeah it it seems like you know Shirley Saruman created this great system and then when you combine the DNS aspect and the stuff that evolved out of Yonda it just kind of takes off where Shirley left off is it is is that kind of correct I don't know because I see Shirley I also have seen Shirley evolve over the years I you know when I first heard her speak uh, pretty funny. I actually sent her a whole bunch of my notes from 19 when I when I first heard her speak, and she was like stunned that I actually had notes from that long ago. <laughs> <laughs> and so she even said that the concepts are basically her concepts still the underlying concepts are the same, but you can actually see it evolve, uh, including much more of the motor control. So I would say. Yes, she has this entire system, but uh, I see her interviewing a lot of the motor control, which Professor Yanda was really, uh, really into at that time. So it's, a, it's a, I would say very complimentary. <laughs> yeah. Well, let, let's, let's lay it down for like a, a, someone that's new to some of the movement science aspects. Yeah. If, if you were a new grad and you wanted to take each of those courses, Movement Links, which is your course series, Shirley Saruman's movement science courses and Yonda and DNS, what order would you take that in? If you had to, and you were gonna take all three, what would you do? I think a lot of Shirley's uh, materials actually been already somewhat introduced and infiltrated in a lot of PT schools. Mm, True. So that has been a really nice thing to, 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 to actually uh, appreciate because in the past a lot of PT schools did not even include any movement aspect but you can see now the movement system is actually integrated in some most curriculums I would say if it if it's not in depth at least they most students will have an exposure and I also know from the years of teaching that Professor Yanda's work has also been infiltrated yeah. <laughs> so you can see there are a lot uh, a lot of inf- a lot of concepts are already included in a lot of the PT curriculum. Now, of course, when a student hears all this, they might just hear I call it the cliff notes. Mm-hmm. And someone who might want to explore much more, they will go into more in depth. Uh, I always feel that whenever you hear the approach, you're you should be open to anything that you hear, but there are always some things that will connect much more with yourself. Sure. So for me, when I was a new grad, I took a lot of courses, but somehow when I heard Shirley speak that one time, I, it just connected. Yeah. And that was when I start to explore much more of the movement system. Awesome. So what can I say? It's like, uh, if you ask me what 
uh, what movement classes to take in order I like uh, you know I think some people will just connect with certain things much more yeah that's true I mean the speaker does bring the dynamic yeah to a tangible level right especially, mm -hmm. yes. especially with kinesthetic learning you need that's so right. much of that right um, yeah. Kathy, what drew you to Claire's approach and the movement science world uh, down in SoCal um, well, I was first exposed to it by some of my mentors who uh, have taken the fellowships and from there I had a lot, they were trying to teach me techniques and I think ultimately it, it came down to just understanding how the brain and the, the body are connected and how it influences it, right? And, and knowing that part of it is to tapping into the brain and the CNS, right? That is not just you know, moving the arm to move the arm, but how does it all work together and how, um, and maybe Claire can talk a little bit more about DNS and, and the evolution of that, but how some of the developmental patterns that we've had yeah. as a baby mimic what we do now and how all those patterns are integrated in us and how to tap into those. I thought that was a yeah. lot of fun and, and really uh, a great way to kind of cheat and get the patient or the your, your client to do activities that you know, in the end, will evolve into the function or the sport that they're going to do. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Fully makes sense. Yeah. Um, so let's ask this kind of thing. We, we've talked a little bit more in the recent past about intrinsic versus extrinsic cueing. And yeah. I'll let Kathy kind of ask more specifics on that. But how many repetitions do you think it takes to take a new pattern that you teach someone where they have aberrant movements and you're teaching them how to do it more efficiently how many repetitions in your guys' minds does it take to change that, to go back into a more efficient movement system? That's a hard question. Depends I know. What theory like... you're going to buy. Yeah. So, <laughs> you know, the usual 10,000 hours that people talk about. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But then I've heard a lot of people say it's not just 10,000 hours, it's 10,000 deliberate hours hmm. where you are consciously thinking about it as you're doing it mm. it's not just practice 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 yeah because you can practice ten thousand times but you still know better than someone who just did a uh, thousand hours yeah so in my opinion how do you get someone to change a pattern is yes it's practice but it's very deliberate and very very intentional yeah huh? so uh, how many hours? I don't know. <laughs> I just know that it has to be with repetition, with intention, and it's very deliberate. Yeah. Well, because you have to take something conscious and eventually, hopefully, lead it into yes. a subconscious, actionable movement, yeah. right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So 10,000 so, is your number? You're going to 10,000? All right. I'll take that. No. <laughs> I don't want people going out there so it's 10,000 hours. <laughs> <laughs> all right oh maybe i'll tell you a story okay yeah. so people say do can movement patterns be changed yeah so i grew up playing badminton and i was actually uh was i started playing when i was a kid and i became very good so by that time i was already state champion all right on the way to my goal was to be to make the national team to represent malaysia in the world games. So I had a new coach. I knew this coach would take me further, but he hated the way I, not he hated, he did not think my footwork or my strokes would take me there. Yeah. So he broke me down. <laughs> Meaning he felt that if I was to go to the next level, I had to have a better foundation. So what took me to the state level, state championship, I maybe got there just pure, out of pure grit and being scrappy player. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? By being scrappy, I was just... <laughs> but he took me, he basically peeled back so much to the point where I was so frustrated because when I was learning this new pattern, day in, day out, day in, day out, my my what do you call it my level of play actually did not go up mm -hmm. it actually when regressed to the point where i became so frustrated uh that i wanted to like oh this is not working out <laughs> however to tell you just to make a long story short 
uh, I hope you don't mind me telling the story. No, this is great. <laughs> I love yeah. it. So in this championship, I was playing this player and I won. I was happy about it. And then as soon as I step out the court, when I was debriefing with the coach, he just chewed me out. <laughs> He's like, what were you doing there? What do you think you were doing? You went back to your old patterns. I don't care if you won or not, but you just did not do what I told you, <laughs> what we've been practicing. And I'm like devastated. I just won the state championship, but oh, I got chewed out. All right. To make another long story. So he worked harder on me and uh, next championship, I lost. I lost to this player uh, who uh, was not, yeah, okay, I lost, right? <laughs> and I was devastated. But he pulled me aside after that. He congratulated me. Hmm. Huh, interesting, huh? <laughs> yeah. And he said, he said he could see that when I was on the court, I was, I was a split second, microsecond slower because my brain was trying to choose yeah. which way to do it. Hmm. And because of that split slower second, I actually chose what we practiced. And so he knew it was already catching on in working. the brain level. Yeah, uh, It was working. And honestly, after that, that loss, when I made that little, like I call the movement pattern change, that was when I actually, when, uh, when I kept going up and then I made it to the national team. <laughs> Interesting, huh? <laughs> yeah. You gotta put those uh, if you ask me how many, uh, how many months it took me, it took me at least, at least six to eight months yeah. for that pattern to set, but it was deliberate. Well, you had the other variable. I wish it would be sooner. <laughs> <laughs> Well, those, those individuals that don't necessarily come in with raw, natural talent in the foundations level, right? You had this other yeah. thing called grit. And have you read the book, Grit? Yep. So right? <laughs> it defines so, good, so yes. many people that I've run into and my own story of, you know, trying to climb the mm -hmm. ladder of education and, and do different things. Yeah. Is, grit is amazing. I think that speaks yeah. multitudes of like how you fit in intention and, and these practice hours into an output like it and an effect that's right right and those types of things. yeah that's great love yeah. that story. thank you oh. <laughs> um just oh. to kind of shift and kind of go back to the cueing and learning new movement yeah. patterns um what are your thoughts about like extrinsic versus intrinsic cueing um how the research has been showing you know yeah. more pushing towards extrinsic cueing and how has that kind of played into your practice now yeah so it's really funny you even say that because I didn't know what this was many years. Uh, when I was being coached, if you look at a lot of athletes, they don't have a lot of internal cueing. A lot of coaches yeah. trained by external cueing. So I actually grew up with a lot of external cueing. And so how it influenced me in my PT career is like I talk less when I'm coaching until and I didn't know what I was doing until I heard this big talk about intrinsic and ext internal intrinsic and extrinsic cueing and I'm like oh this is what they're talking about <laughs> <laughs> and actually I've been actually you so you asked me these questions about uh what my thoughts are of course extrinsic cueing is much better for performance training but there is a place for intrinsic cueing as well because intrinsic cueing actually gets you to be more aware. Mm -hmm. It's more like a body awareness. Um, and I've been taught quite a bit by my patients actually, because hmm. when I'm trying to ask them to get them to do something and they're not getting it. So I will use my hands to do whatever I can to connect their body to their brain. This is where I'm doing brain training. And then, then when they get it, what has helped me is asking them, hey, what were you thinking when you were, you got that right? What were you thinking? Or, and then they tell me and they give me all these analogies and metaphors. And I'm like, oh, I'm going to keep those metaphors in my head because next time I will use it on another, on another patient. So to answer your question, Kathy, I think there is value in both. 
I do think that as PTs, when we're coaching uh, exercise to patients, sometimes I think we, we talk too much, <laughs> meaning we tell the patient, okay, now tighten this. Okay, now breathe in, breathe out. Now move this, move this hand, move it at to 90 degrees. There's so much like cueing. I've done that in the past. So I've been guilty of it in the past. And I I tell you, it kind of helped me change was my patient. Uh, She's like, Claire, uh, that's too much information for me. (laughs) She's like, like, can you, she's like, my my old mistress like, I I know you're trying really hard, but I don't remember a thing you just said. Can you just give me one thing to remember? So if you have a choice, do extrinsic cueing much more or there's metaphors, analogies, rather than focus on body parts. However, I do know that some patients do quite well with intrinsic cueing as well. <laughs> so you cannot throw the baby out of the bed with the bathwater. There is a place for both. Which is, yeah. I think it's one of those things our, our profession is the most guilty of. As physios, yeah. we read the new article it okay. has new systematic review and then everybody jumps on board and we ride that pendulum and everybody yes. swings this way. And then we throw out all the other stuff. We say, oh, no intrinsic cueing anymore. Extrinsic right. better and boom, we're not doing any of that anymore. And I see yes. the same thing. Let's, let's take a dive from this into a tangent of pain science. In the last right. five to eight years, right? Pain science is that pendulum everybody's grabbed onto and we're yeah. swinging and we've gotten so far away from sometimes using our hands That's or right. using other components of, I think, biomechanics, right? And biomechanics yeah. has gotten a bad name to it because we're just talking about pain science all the time. And, yeah. and tell yeah. us your thoughts on, on some of these ideas of the pain science world and what that means to you with, uh, again, a lot of time it's new grads that are influenced with big ideas from this one research paper that said this, and now they're going to ride that train the whole way. Yeah, I, I, I think it's very, I think, I mean, <laughs> I, I hear you. <laughs> and so it's like, I hope that we, as physical therapists, we learn to balance, yeah? So I hear people talk about the pain signs that you just have to talk to the patient and everything will be all good. <laughs> yeah. And I actually would have set in with patients who are being, when I'm mentoring my fellows, fellows are trying to do the pain talk, so to speak, Mm. to the patients. And the patients actually have kind of confronted some of my fellows as well and said, hey, you know what? I already see my psychologist for that. (laughs) (laughs) What are you going to do for me? Uh, Yeah. I mean, it's really, I mean, it's quite telling when you just wanna sit and talk with the patient to tell them that pain is in your brain or mm-hmm. is pain is an output and all, all. And I'm like, uh, when I see that happen, I'm like, oh gosh, this, I, I wanna watch how this fellow gets out of this. <laughs> yeah, um, I think how I see manual therapy, whatever, whatever we do or, Anytime, uh, I'll make it very simple. Whenever I put my hands on someone or whatever I say to the patients, I'm using my hands or what I speak as a modulator to the CNS. Mm -hmm. As I modulate that input into the brain through tactile or however, however, or through movement, or fascial work, whatever. I'm trying to modulate input into the brain to reduce the threat. And the output is what I'm looking for to see, you know, the final outcome is, are they, is it easier for them to move? Is the, is the pain reduced or the symptoms reduced? Or I think my whole thing is empower my patient, give them the power that they have, have some control over their pain how to modulate themselves. So I don't know if I'm answering your question, but uh, uh, as physical therapists, I, we, we, we need to put our hands on. It's not just about talk. <laughs> I agree. I mean, I see that too. I was just gonna say that um, I see a lot of students or even our residents 
they don't want to put their hands on patients anymore. It is more about yeah. talking. And I think there is the value of the care of placing your hands yeah. on them and the treatment. And yeah. like you said, modulating their CNS yeah. and, and guiding them through movements to teach them that it's okay to move as well. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So. Yeah. So spinning another variable, the population I work with is athletes most of the time. So in sports medicine, yeah. If you don't put your hands on the patient, they're going to find somebody else that does <laughs> because that's right. right. They think they're yeah. doing so much exercise. They don't need to retrain movement. They're getting so much coaching every day with double day practices yes. that they're inundated with this, you know, hyper cueing. <laughs> and that's so right. if you don't use your hands, they don't believe, you know, what you're doing or how to, how you're going to help them. Um, yeah. And yeah. that's just one of those. Oh, true not necessarily sad realities. It's something that maybe they don't need all the manual aspects that they are asking right. for, but it is something mm -hmm. that is still a rapport building. And it's something that builds right. trust in their nervous system. And when their nervous system trusts you, it calms down and often they are remedied, whether right. it's your hands doing it or the fact that they expected it, right? The expectations level of things. That's right. But it is something yeah. I, I see a lot in sports medicine that the pain science sports medicine providers are causing tension in the road and it's yeah. kind of a there's a there's a little bit of a, a playing chicken right now between two cars coming at each other of <laughs> pain science and you know manual therapy and sports medicine and it's yeah that's very know. unfortunate yeah it is it is yeah but, uh, but it makes for interesting dialogue and lots of uh you know fun social media discussions strong discussions <laughs> i would say yes <laughs> Um, so let's think about, I love the movement science component linked with the central nervous system. And some of the things that you guys talk about is how to incorporate optimal movement and optimal movement sometimes looks something as simple as joint centration, right? Getting the body to move with in a biomechanical world, the joint being able to contact the other side of the joint in optimal planes yeah. throughout the motion. How do That's we fine. in the next say five or 10 years, research some of the concepts that you're teaching in your movement links courses to have better analysis and better outcomes is it just clinical studies with you know outcome-based you know clinical double-blind studies or are you looking at other ways of biomechanically assessing some of the things that you're incorporating are there any biomechanical studies assessing a movement links approach versus other approaches out there and what does that look like uh, so just to kind of like uh, when I think of movement links, I mean, I actually incorporate so many other approaches. So it's not like totally unique yeah, in yeah. that sense that it's not like a sole approach on its own. It's actually incorporation of various approaches, biomechanics, mm -hmm. uh, uh, DNS, uh, Dr. Starman's, Yonder's, and fascial work, you know, Myers, Stecco, not Stecco. I, I'm not so familiar with Stecco, but uh, the slings and chains. Yep. Um, so it's a lot of incorporation. So as far as research goes, I mean, <laughs> I think that if you want to look at the CNS part, the EMG is not going to cut it because EMG was just going to be local. So I think I think more and more studies, hopefully in the future, will involve more like the t um, uh, transcranial uh, or a magnetic resonance. But you know, all those stuff is going to be hard to do because you have to have fancy toys. Yeah. And so in the clinic, it's going to be quite dependent on the clinician's ability to, to, to use your eyes, mm -hmm. use your hands. So to me, nothing can replace the human, the human person. Uh, you can have sensors, yes. Uh, but somehow there's... I might be biased. I, I think you can get a lot of information from your eyes as well as your hands and just how you watch people move. Yeah. But that's my bias. Definitely. Well, and, and the big criticism in that world right now is if we lined up 100 physios and yes. they looked at everybody doing exactly the same movement, you'd have, you know, 50, 50 different interpretations, right? Yeah, uh, so you're right. And so hopefully that Hopefully, biomechanics. I mean, with the the video analysis with the biomechanics, you can't. There's, it's like you you can't. You, you, biomechanics is more tangible. Yeah, yeah. Huh? When you can measure the the force vectors, you can measure. I mean, to me, that's a little bit more quantitative. Yeah. Now, 
qualitative studies are tough to do. Yeah. Uh, it's not, it's just the nature of the beast. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, there's too many variables on and looking yes. at this, especially 2D motion, but even 3D motion sometimes when you yeah. don't have a force plate to look at vectors, but yes. you're looking at movement, there's so many other variables with it. You know, we don't have enough dots yeah. to put on people. <laughs> yeah, you're right. I mean, you should put dots everywhere because. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It comes out. Yeah. And so, the, study, you know, yeah. the studies no, now, I'd say, you know, we're using more EMG studies that are surface electrodes as compared to fine wire. And, you know, yeah. we have a lot of issues with that in, in terms of the noise yeah. that's in that type of study anyway. So yeah. I just want to know Love if like you thought there was some other way of looking at researching movement that we could figure out in the next five or 10 years on how to get better data out of the, some of those things. I think it's hard. I think it's technology-based and we have to wait for the right yeah. technology. But yeah. in your mind, are there any studies that you have looming that are you trying to be a part of? <laughs> no. Usually people who come up with the studies and I'm like, I'll think about it. Yeah. I'm not the originator. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. That's not my wheelhouse, but you know, I will give my input, but uh, I don't know. I think it's a very complex um, study to do movement. You can measure the biomechanics, but then on the other hand, you have recruitment. You can, and then many studies have shown, I mean, you can have a very strong muscle, but sometimes it doesn't fire at the right time. Yeah. So then, then you have, we are talking about recruitment and then how does the brain organize all this material? input in the brain. And then, then another, uh, another approach talks about dynamic systems theory where you can really, well, the same movement will not be the same movement when you do 10 repetitions. So how do you measure that? <laughs> yeah, movement variability is a big buzzword yes, lately too. It right? is, Huge. yeah. So in my mind, you know, I can try to get the, I call it posture foundation as best as I can. With the hopes that if you have a good, foundation that might set up a stage for more like centrated or neutral joint mechanics as well as muscle pull and then you get efficiency of movement but that's the hypothesis yeah absolutely well and yeah and that just brings another huge debate in the movement science rehab world yes. is posture and is is posture even something that we should strive to correct because right, all these systematic reviews looking at this posture versus that posture and injury risk or injury rates right. not being very different. And again, I think people have grabbed onto the pendulum and swung with it and said, oh, throw yeah. posture out because it doesn't have any yeah. relevance to actually predicting injury risk or- Yeah, so I, I agree because I've seen people with really, really like, you wouldn't call it horrible, terrible posture, but they don't have pain. Yeah. So there's not a strong correlation between posture and pain. Well, how I use posture, how I was taught by Professor Yana, who was just, he's just a, you know, he was just astute with his, his observation skills. Yeah. Is when I see someone posturing, whether it's in movement, statically or in movement, how they posture themselves, their muscle bulk, whatever, gives me a clue on how they may be using their bodies. Okay. And it just gives me a snapshot. It's not gonna say, hey, uh, I see this big muscle, that means it's super strong and it's overactive. It might give me a clue. Yeah. My job is, as a clinician, is to test it and check it out myself to confirm it. So I see looking at the posture, basically it's a, like a stepping, it's, it gives me a clue. Yeah. To what tests I need to do to to confirm or refute it. Absolutely. So, yeah. so I find it very useful. Yeah, I think if you're listening right now, you have to take the posture as a puzzle piece, right? It's a piece yeah. of the puzzle to paint the picture that you're trying to figure out what it all looks yeah. like. But don't just throw it out because it doesn't correlate to pain. Just because something doesn't correlate to pain, whether it's, yeah. you know, some type of posture or other type of pathology or an MRI, all these things still are variables. They're still pieces of information. And I think, yeah. you know, again, it's the pendulum swing and 
People are just ditching posture. They're ditching MRIs. They're ditching yeah. all the things that are not holding up in systematic reviews and things. So it's yeah. very, <laughs> yeah. so. very interesting. Um, Kathy, Kathy, what do you think? What do you think? Yeah. <laughs> Well, I totally agree. I think the big thing is, as Claire mentioned, is it is just, it's just like additional information, right? And you're just trying to find all the tests to match up or refute your hypotheses. And um, just like an MRI, you kind of, you, you acknowledge it and then you see if it correlates with other patterns that you're noticing in their movement or with your other tests or range of motion and strength and does it all kind of relate to the actual issue or is it actually unrelated? And then you kind of just yeah. ignore it then, exactly. right? But I think you need that information and the data gathering in your objective exam and, and stuff is really important. And that's why you need to do the thorough exam. It's, yeah. you it's shouldn't nice. like skip, skip out and, yeah. and so cut corners. I, I, I see it more like the posture and movement gate, how people move gives me a clue on how they move functionally. When I say functional, it's a functional way of thinking, meaning I can make some predictions and then confirm it with certain tests. Right. And this is very useful when someone comes in with back pain or neck pain or shoulder pain and their MRI findings or the x-ray findings, imaging are all inconclusive, non-significant. So you cannot blame it on structure anymore. So what's the deal? <laughs> so this is how I'm gonna use my functional lens <laughs> to look at the person. For sure. That makes, that makes total sense. Um, Kathy, let's ask you specifically, and Claire can confirm or refute. Um, I see a lot of butt slapping in my clinic, you know? <laughs> Kathy, Kathy likes to butt slap and- yeah, I've not done it a long time, <laughs> actually, to be honest. I don't think I've done it in a while. <laughs> I used to see a lot of butt slapping. Well, Dean yeah. Landon, right? Landon does butt slapping. Um, I think a lot of people that come out of this DNS world work on for things like clamshells or things like side planks to facilitate. Um, tell, tell us what the butt slap's all about. I just, I think we'll see it sometimes and, you know, I'm taken aback by it a little bit, but. Uh. I mean, I think it's kind of stems to even kind of like that neuro component, right? Of, um, what is the technique when you're like just facilitating, yeah. rubbing, tapping, Brood. using, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, to try to facilitate the muscle. And maybe in the beginning, um, if a patient doesn't have that connection to the muscle, maybe because it's atrophy, maybe they are so quad dominant, they're not able to engage their glutes. Um, maybe they've had an injury and it's just kind of shut down, maybe even maybe a nerve component that you just want to wake it up. And it's not like that's the end all, but that might be that little facilitation to get them going, to get that system going, reconnect the brain, reconnect some of those patterns that they've had in the past, but kind of disconnected yeah. to. Yeah. And then hopefully then you transition that into the more of the functional exercises where they're able to engage it better in a squat or running or walking or whatever the task is. So um, the butt, so it's just yeah, like a sorry. tool. Yeah. Sorry, it's a tool. Uh, the yeah. background with the butt slapping. Uh, when I first saw Professor Yanda do that back, that butt slap, I was stunned. I, was like, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it was not like just the little tap. I mean, it was like a real slap on the butt. <laughs> I was, I was totally shocked. But the background is, he got a lot of his techniques from the neural people, the rude ROOD. Uh, Sister Kenny in the polio era where mm. muscles were just basically like, I call it dead zones. Yeah, yeah. Nothing could turn on. So that's where the neural facilitation comes into play. Now, uh, I don't do butt slapping because I don't want to get into trouble here. <laughs> <laughs> These days you can't butt slap quite as hard as you used to. No, <laughs> <laughs> not at all. So. It's more, you know, you know, the other tools that you can use, like like vibration, mm -hmm. yeah. And so you can use. So these are tools that we have used all the time in neuro rehab, where we actually use vibrators to on a muscle to just shake it up. Yeah. <laughs> it's like perceptively turn the turn the brain on a little bit. It's like a muscle stim. Yeah. <laughs> so. So yeah, some people still butt slap. Uh, I honestly don't butt slap that much. <laughs> Even though my teacher did it a lot. <laughs> That's great. That's uh, such a great segue into instrument assisted tools. And there's so many things out now to help 
like vibrating things and you know tools like kinesio tape right something that will bring awareness to an area and draw attention if nothing else to the sensory nerves in that area to hopefully help facilitate maybe some motor output as well um you guys use much instrument assisted tool work whether it's cups or tape or therabands or you know force production type things for awareness or cups like to produce a a sense of force distribution um I, I'm a big believer of the myofascial stuff. Okay, mm-hmm. I grew up with it. Um, growing up in Malaysia, most of my, my therapy, so to speak, was actually from traditional Chinese medicine. Mm-hmm. So I got a lot of that soft tissue work, <laughs> uh, painful as I call it. <laughs> it was not the uh, Swedish massage that, <laughs> uh, it definitely was not Swedish massage type. It was pretty painful massage. Um, any case I think they're very useful because I don't see how you can separate fascia from the muscle uh, if you look at all the stuff that all uh, everything's connected and so if I'm going to uh, any tool that I can use so you talk about butt slapping that's one way stimulation people use theragun now yeah what's the difference totally. you're butt slapping but now you're just vibrating the butt yeah. or whatever you're working on <laughs> Uh-huh. use cupping um, uh, cupping is great because I, I, I like cupping if you're doing cupping I like it when you move it yeah. not just sit there because totally. I mean that's just my bent if you're going to well, have a cup there move it <laughs> yeah. and um, I think all these instrumented um, assisted tools are great because it also will help save your hands However, I honestly, on my end, I just like using my hands. It's just, I get a lot of information and maybe I'm old school. Uh, I, I use some tools, but uh, I'm, I still use my hands a lot. Because yeah. <laughs> I, I can vary the force whenever I feel like, I feel a little resistance from the patient. I mean, uh, if I feel like they're, you get a feeling that they're not comfortable or I'm hitting a barrier sooner. Uh, so I just get a lot of information in my hands, but I'm definitely not opposed to using tools. Yeah, the listening skills, right? The percussive ability for a tool to generate different information than your hands do, I yeah. think is, is a value, right? And again, it's a pendulum shift where some people are getting away yeah. from their hands too much. And you still, this is the best tool you have absolutely is your fingertips yeah. and the, the amount of information yeah. you can gather from that. Um, Kathy, what yeah. have you, I think, taken from Yonda DNS Movement Link's approach and incorporated instrument-assisted tools into your practice the most with? What, what, what do you use the most often? Um, well, I'll use actually like with the cups, I even like to use it to almost like inhibit or like to help them to dial down certain muscles that are overactive. If I'm trying to facilitate something, for instance, like the upper trap or TFL mm-hmm. or something, right? If I want to try to get them to, it's almost like biofeedback, right? Yeah. Where if they yeah. start to engage, it becomes painful. Um, and then <laughs> kind of understanding like the slings and the fascial, you know, how it is incorporated. If they are restricted in an area, kind of looking at the whole chain. And if there's restrictions in one area, then you know, again, saving my hands. Um, sometimes you can get a little bit different, um, I guess, uh, results from using instruments versus the hands where yeah. um, it may be more superficial versus deep with my hands where I'm going more in the muscle. I might get more fasci- fascia with the cup or with the instrument mm-hmm. um, or like with scar tissue, which, you know, around certain areas, it's harder for me to kind of get through. I think the the cups and the instruments are actually easier to get around, like around joints. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think it is a good conjunction, uh, a good pairing and learning to use the two, use yeah. it together. I think the biggest thing is, you know, each patient is different and understanding and playing around with it to see what the results are. Right. So I think it's really important to make sure that it's effective, right? In, in the treatment you're doing, yeah. do the test, retest, see if it's actually making the results you want. And then you'll create those patterns of when it's the best time to use which technique you have in your toolbox. Right. Yep. Yeah. Well said. Changes. <laughs> yeah. That, that best practice is a moving target, right? That's what it is. Yeah, that's right. And it's always driven in many ways. It's like we have to listen to the patient. 
yeah uh, i always feel like uh something i learned so much from being with professor yana is like the patient many times you listen to them carefully they actually have the answers mm, yeah they already kind of maybe telling you how to treat them you just have to listen to them totally. uh, and that's a skill that most that I think I've learned to, to, to finesse more mm -hmm. yeah. and yeah, always trying to find out what, the, I always like to ask patients what their thoughts are, because mm -hmm. that gives me an insight into what they're thinking or they think, oh, I don't think it's going to work. I'm like, oh, you don't think it's going to work. Okay. <laughs> and then, but maybe I think it might work. So I may not like force it on them, but maybe sneak it in later. Yeah. And then have them discover that it actually did work a little bit. Totally. So Yeah, I mean, that's uh, one of my favorite questions. I'm a devil's advocate with pain science because I think it is yeah. so helpful. But at the same time, people are leaving other things that are also helpful because of the yeah. thing on pain science. My favorite question to yeah. ask is, why do you think you're in pain? You know, just simple, yeah. very straightforward, very, mm -hmm. you know, open-ended. And then, like you said, they'll tell you the answer yeah. often with that simple cue is like, why mm -hmm. are you in pain with that? Uh, that is fascinating. Tell us maybe like two other things. What, I think you've gotten such a gift to spend time with Yonda in your, in your studies and, and going through that. I got to spend time with Jacqueline Perry for two weeks. Um, yeah. And, All right. so, and that changed my gait analysis. It changed the way I look at runners. So I work with a lot of runners. Yeah. I think spending that time with her finessed my, like, or dialed in my lens to look at gait and running mechanics in a, such a different yeah. way. Um, so tell yeah, us. She was a, yeah. Oh yeah. She was great. I, mean, I said, Jacqueline Perry, Dr. Perry, I had her for two semesters and I'm like freaking yeah. scared. I mean, it's like right. <laughs> <laughs> walking with this giant. Yeah, no, it was intimidating. And, you know, I got her in her later years. So maybe she was a little less funky even than before. So she was probably a firecracker then. But um, with Yonda, tell us maybe it's so interesting to hear some of the, you know, um, things that you discussed or got as pearls from him. What are a couple other pearls you took from spending time with him? I already told you one. It's like, the one that he always told me is listen. Mm. He always said this, every body, body means person's body tells a story. Mm. You got to listen to it. And so I remember when he first said it, I literally did not understand what he was saying. <laughs> <laughs> and I sat there, I'm like, I don't know what he's talking about. But then as I hung out more and more with him, as well as start to practice and what I just told you is like listening to the patient, it's like for these little cues, whether it's how they posture themselves or how they are speaking or the stories they tell you, they're telling you something. Mm -hmm. So I've learned to, uh, I, I would say I credit him for helping me maybe be a little bit more intentional in how I listen to the patient, yeah. how I watch how they move, and you can call me a stalker if you wish, <laughs> but as uh, soon as they, I see them in the waiting room, I only watching how they sit, what they're doing. And then when I shake their hand, when they get up, it's already an assessment. Yeah. And when I'm doing a subjective exam with them, sitting, just chatting with them, I, I'm not sure what it is. Like maybe, because I was so deliberate and intentional before, now it's so automatic that yeah. it's just part of this process now. <laughs> yeah. I think that's a it's, running theme with who we think is of, of as, as gurus, whether it's Shirley yeah. or Jacqueline Perry or Yonda or whoever. Um, I got to do a course with Lori Hartman, same thing. Mm -hmm. yeah. It was all about observation and taking in the finer details. It's like yeah. the ultimate simplicity yields the most sophisticated analysis you know yeah just so interesting yeah. yeah so yeah that's i i'm i'm still working on it <laughs> good yeah it is a lifelong learning aspect um, it is uh, the other thing he said okay uh you asked me what what he said a lifelong learner 
He says, the day you stop learning is the day you die. <laughs> That's what he used to tell me. Yeah. <laughs> it's always learning. So I'm going to be a life, lifelong learner. Totally. Um, Kathy, let's say, you know, your, your first year out of practice, what would you have changed kind of going through the things that you learned with Claire back then that you appreciate now more? Um, well, actually, I did uh, residency a year after I graduated. So there was that year of me just trying to throw everything at the patient, right? Like I didn't know what was working. And I think the biggest thing is um, one, taking in the big picture, right? Making sure you have like an idea what's going on going into it, whether it's through your subjective and just, you know, your, your chart review and everything to kind of create that framework. Otherwise, as, in, as a new grad, you know, you just test everything outside in the, you know, everything in, outside the box, right? Like everything for the knee. And I think it just becomes too complicated and too hard to process. Um, and then you don't know what's working and what's helping, right? And then you do too many treatments at once, right? Like I'm gonna give them exercise, I'm gonna do manual therapy, I'm gonna do all this on day one. And I think in the end, the biggest thing I took out of it is take it like an experiment, right? Like you don't throw in too many variables at once. You don't do too many interventions at once. Like take it um, one step at a time to build those patterns, to build your understanding of what works for which patient, which um, diagnoses. And then that I think will help you lead to become more of the expert clinician, right? I mean, it, it's a lot of trial and error in the beginning. I think depending on the practice you're at, there might be a lot of pressure, right? Like you see them twice a week, you're seeing that maybe for a very short amount of time, you may have to hand them off to an aide. You know, it depends on the cl clinic you're at versus maybe another clinic where you only see them once every two weeks, right? So efficiency <laughs> becomes more important in those situations. And so I think all of that helps you, but it's, it's hard and it's slow. It's a slow process. And uh, I really appreciate all the mentoring I've gotten from Claire and all my mentors uh, through that process to help me develop and understand how it works. Absolutely, that's great. Um, Claire, what would you tell your 25 year old you outside of listening, which it's obvious we, we got a lot of listening under the table or on top of the, on the table now, but what would you tell 25 year old you at this moment, Claire? If I, yeah. Yeah, in terms of good, like how to good, progress better. How to get yeah, better how outcomes faster. I wish I would have relaxed much more. Mm. You know, now that I've, I've practiced for so long, I mean, it's like, look, uh, when you're young, you're insecure. <laughs> I wish I was more, I could have just been, have laughed at myself much more. <laughs> yeah. You know, at the mistakes I made. I mean, I did plenty of mistakes and I knew I made mistakes and I probably beat myself over the head so much. Uh, you know, uh, I don't think I, I laughed very much when I was 25 years old because I just wanted to be like on the ball, always like perfect, so to speak, even though I knew I will never be perfect. <laughs> yeah. I really wish I laughed my, at myself much more and just say, hey, you know what? Learn from your mistakes and go, go forward. Totally. Uh, uh, but what I think as a young 25 year old, one thing I do know at that time, um, I was one of those PTs who didn't know, who didn't think they, she knew anything. Okay, I know a lot of uh, PTs that come out now that they think they know everything. <laughs> yeah, I was well, not one well. of that. I'm not kidding. <laughs> I remember walking with the patients. This is a new grad. I had my cheat sheet, what questions to ask. <laughs> it was not natural for me. So I always had my cheat sheet prior to going to see my new patients and had this list. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, I think I, I did okay because it became more like a, uh, at first it was more mechanical. And then it became a little bit more, I would say more natural later on. But in the beginning, I think I was like a machine. <laughs> Just asking those questions, which actually I don't think was a bad idea at that for me. It gives you repetition, right? And then- you Yes, give me repetition. And uh, as time went, so to my 25 year old, I just wish I kind of um, 
relax a little bit more and laugh at myself more. Yeah. And he not be does, so hard on myself. Yeah. Heed those wise, 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 wise words. Yeah. Laugh more. As soon as I started laughing more, I enjoyed my job more. And I think my patients yes. got better faster. Yes. Kathy knows I laugh way too much. Yeah. Now. Yeah. And um, I would tell my 25 year old is to, you're not going to be an expert in a year. Yeah. It's going to be a process and enjoy the process. Mm. Yeah. It's not, it's a journey. It's not like, okay, I'm here. I want to get there and done. Totally. Enjoy that process. Even though it can be painful, <laughs> sometimes very painful <laughs> and slow. <laughs> well, I think you hit the nail on the head of why maybe some of the newer clinicians now think they know it all. That's not, they don't, they, they know they don't know it all, but they're so insecure that they're puffing their feathers out, right? To present... <laughs> to a patient confidence and present to their other coworkers confidence or their mentors confidence. And they use, I think, research as this foundation of security. And that's all they have. And so they grip the research so hard that they forget about the human being in front of them, you know? And I think that's, that kind of defines the, the current, I think, new young clinician in whatever discipline they're coming out, whether it's Cairo or acupuncture yeah. or massage therapy or physio, I think there's so much robust research out there that they find that as a security blanket, but forget that they don't know anything yet, right? And yeah. it takes five years to even feel like, I kind of know what I'm doing now almost a little bit. <laughs> yeah, and then, you know, I think all of us who have been practicing more a number of years, I feel like the more I know, the less I know. Oh yeah. But I do know that I, I know what I know. <laughs> but I also know a lot that I, don't know or have or have yet to even explore which is beautiful about life right because otherwise when you're yes. done that what happens you die that's right <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's great what a great place to end <laughs> uh wise words i think this was a super great conversation and, and fun dialogue uh between um anything i want to add to that kathy any wise words um, I think you guys summed it up well, and I agree. It's just more, you know, don't be complacent and don't think, you know, right? Like keep doing the research or keep, you know, talking yeah. to your colleagues and, you know, your patient will give you the most mm -hmm. information as you guys mentioned. Um, you know, we, I think are just a conduit for all that information to be filtered in order to, you know, give the best care for our patients. But in the end, it's, it's what other people are giving us, right. In order to, for us to give it back to them. So. Absolutely. Yeah. The yeah. patient I think is more important than the pundits out there that are driving research down your throat at all times mm -hmm. you know, on social media and things like that. Listen to yeah. the patient. They'll teach you just as much, if not more than your, PT school or ATC school or whatever school you went to professors taught mm -hmm. you. That's right. More, for sure. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Love it. This was great, Claire. Thank you so much for Thanks. Thanks opening for up and talking about your amazing experience with Yonda. Um, tell us where we can find out more about you and movement links and all that kind of stuff. Well, you can always Google me, you know, that's what <laughs> Dr. Google is for. <laughs> um, you know, those of you who are interested, I have a website which I reluctantly put up. So, but um, it's clairefrank.com. And for courses, if you're interested, it's actually movementlinks.com. Yeah. So I teach a number of courses as well as a lot of the instructors are also teaching them. So like Kathy helps out whenever we are out in the Bay Area. So um, yeah, check us out. <laughs> Highly recommend. You can also find uh, Movement Links on Instagram. It's just Movement Links as the That's handle. That's right. Yeah. Or find Claire on Instagram as well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Ways of finding you. And we'll put that in the show notes as well so that we can also find you there. So great. Well, thank you again. Any... Thank you for having me. Yeah, it was fun. I, I love talking to people I don't get to spend enough time with and don't have enough time to take all the courses of. But at some point, I'm going to come down for Movement Links or at least the Yonda course as well and brush up. <laughs> Oh, you know, I think you already know more than you think you know. So <laughs> I don't know. I like to err on the side of I don't know Jack. So 
remember the final lesson we talked about. You don't know. <laughs> yeah, I stay busy because I like to think I don't know anything still. So that helps. But thank you so much, Kathy, for co-hosting here and yeah. Claire. And thank Claire, you. Yeah, stay healthy out there and keep it up. And uh, we'll hopefully see you live in person in the Bay Area soon. All right. Thank you again. Bye. Bye. Thanks, Claire. Bye. Bye.